Well, turn in your Bibles, if you haven't already, to Psalm 26. Now, we can't say for sure, but some believe the occasion for this psalm was actually David's flight from Jerusalem when he had to run from his son Absalom. It, it seems to fit. We're told in 2 Samuel 15, 6, that David's son had used the promises of favor as bribes to steal the hearts of the men of Israel, mounting a coup d'etat against his own father. Absalom hid behind hypocrisy and conspired treason, succeeding in driving his father from Jerusalem, from his palace, and significantly for this psalm, perhaps, driving David from the place of God's presence on earth, from the tabernacle itself. In this psalm, you can hear how David delights in the presence of God, a presence that he's experienced time and again in the house of God. Uh, like I told the kids, David's love for God and being close to him actually forms the foundation for this psalm. And it's because David loves the Lord that he makes conscious, determined choices. Whether he's on the run in the wilderness or he's at home in the house of the Lord, David chooses to maintain his allegiance to the Lord over and above any other allegiance. His enjoyment of God is expressed by continuously committing himself to live as one of God's people. Uh, this morning, we need to see in this psalm what it means to choose allegiance to God over allegiance to the world. But first, let me talk briefly about this ability to make this choice. This is an important topic. We don't have time to, for a full explanation right now. So you can grab me afterwards if you want to talk more. I'll buy the first cup of coffee and we can talk. But for now, I want to say two things. First, the scriptures repeatedly confront us with the fact that human beings will only ever choose sin apart from the grace of God, unless God, by His grace, gives us new hearts, new wills. Because apart from His Spirit's work in His people, sin holds even our will in bondage. Ever since Adam rebelled in the garden, human beings, as Augustine put it, are by nature not able not to sin. You get that? Not able not to sin means you're only able to sin. But that leads me to the second thing that must be said about our ability to choose. Something else that the scriptures repeat when the Spirit of God brings us to life, bringing together dry bones and making us alive in Christ, then together with that gift of life, God also gives us a renewed ability to choose, to freely choose both God and His ways. Now, indeed, a free will is part of the freedom that the Son gives when He makes us free indeed. Yes, the sin that is still in us still corrupts. And choosing God's ways at first will feel unnatural. 
like learning music or a new language, but God's work of renewing our sin-shattered humanity includes the renewal of our wills so that we can make choices that honor God as God. In other words, again, as Augustine says, by faith in Him, God's people become able to sin and able not to sin. And so what we see in Psalm 26 is a recounting of the choices David has made as a person who has been set free by the Lord to do so, as a recipient of grace, as one who embraces the Lord from the heart, David chooses that which enables him to enjoy the presence of God. And he wants to make those choices every time. David's choices here, they actually represent the choices of an ideal worshiper of God. He is a picture, an image for us of what it looks like to live in the here and now as one of God's people. He's making choices that fit who he is as a citizen of God's kingdom. And that means he's saying no. He's saying no to ways of living that lead to death. And he's saying yes to a beautiful, good life lived in the presence of God. But now you might feel something that I have felt. A sting of pain and the recognition that I don't actually live this way. My choices don't always reflect a consistent allegiance to God or His kingdom. Maybe, like me, you see how our inconsistent choices are actually connected to how faint and how fleeting our desire for God's presence really is. We live so much of our lives distracted by other things, and, and through want of practicing His presence, our eyes and our hearts grow dull to His beauty, to His goodness. But it is here in our failure, that's exactly where Jesus meets us and He says to us, Peace. Don't be afraid. Because for all our failure to love God with our hearts and souls and minds and strength, for all of our failure to choose what is best, and right, Jesus never failed. He maintained his allegiance to God and his kingdom all the way from the incarnation to the cross. He chose and sustained a life of innocence and a life of worship, choosing to value God's opinion of him rather than the opinions of men. And through that, what did he accomplish for you and me? What did he accomplish in living and dying and rising again? He accomplished nothing less than a full and complete cleansing for you and me. And by this cleansing, by the removal of sin, by removal of all our defilement, we have free access in him to the presence of God, both now and forever. 
And so here in our weakness and failure is the place where His grace meets us. Today, once again, Jesus holds in front of us His nail-pierced hands, assuring us of His grace and our freedom in Him. And when we look through those holes in His hands and we see His face, His face is not frowning in disappointment. No, we see a face that may be creased with sympathy, and yet it remains full of love for you. Knowing we did not and could not choose Him, He chose to come and die and rise again so that we, so that we could begin choosing life instead of choosing death all the time. And so I want you to listen to David as he tells you what choices he's made. Because by singing his glad choices publicly, David invites us to consider how good it would be if we joined him. Because the same God who showed steadfast love to David, the same God who did wondrous deeds for David to sing about, the same God who has made a way for sinners like David to celebrate in his presence, that same God has done all this for you in Christ. And since He has done all of this to set us free to choose Him in His ways, then we, we must choose allegiance to God over allegiance to the world. But you might be asking, okay, fine, but what does that mean? Well, here in the psalm it means at least three things. First, this choosing allegiance to God means choosing an innocent life. Choosing an innocent life. Second, it means choosing a worshipful life. A worshipful life. And third, it means choosing to value God's opinion of us over the opinions of men. Let's start with the first one. Let's start with the choice of an innocent life. Look at verses 4 and 5 in your Bibles. David uses some really strong language here. He describes what he hates. He describes some things that he will not do, does not do, and will not do. He, he says he does not sit with men of falsehood. He does not consort with hypocrites. He hates the assembly of evildoers. But if, as one writer points out, if these verses sound arrogant, we mistake them. David's hatred of them is not based on any social preference. This has nothing to do with a holier-than-thou kind of smugness. Rather, David is using language that actually echoes that of Psalm 1-1. David understands that the counsel of the wicked, the ways of the wicked, the posture of those who reject the Lord are antithetical to the character of God and to a life lived under His blessing. David, however, loves the Lord. He recognizes that he belongs to a totally other world than these men in terms of his spiritual alignment. And so David makes a choice. He will not throw his lot in with such men. And that's because their assembly, that's the same word that shows up in verse 12, the assembly of these men 
represent a rival congregation to the one that his heart actually belongs to. The, that great assembly in verse 12 of God's people. David belongs to the kingdom and people of God. And so he's not going to join himself to those who stand against the Lord. For you and me, we cannot overstate how costly this would be for David. I ask yourself, what does David stand to gain if he throws in his lot with such men and uses their means of advancement in this world. Most kings in the ancient world built their kingdoms by deceiving their enemies, smiling at them just before killing them. I've actually been listening to a history podcast lately, and I can't tell you how many times a king has lured a large group of his rivals to a party only to slaughter them after a few glasses of wine. It's happened over and over and over again. That's how kings consolidated their power. And the choice to live that way is actually the choice that David's own son made. Absalom's hypocrisy threatened David's own life. But by choosing an innocent life... David is giving up the ordinary human means of obtaining riches and reputation and power. And he does this because he understands that there is actually a greater cost to joining himself to that other company. It's a price that he's not willing to pay. Because those other men have rebelled against the Lord and against his covenant, friendship with them would mean abandoning friendship with God. But, but David loves his friendship with the Lord. David's eyes have seen the steadfast love of the Lord. He has walked all his days beneath the faithfulness of this God. And so David has made, and if you follow the change in verb tenses, he has made and will continue making a conscious choice. He renounces this assembly of darkness for a better assembly. He gladly joins himself to those who love the Lord in his better, beautiful ways. He has nothing in common with men of darkness, and so he maintains, he resolves to maintain his allegiance to the Lord and to his innocent ways. And you and I today have to make that same resolution to choose an innocent life as an expression of allegiance to the Lord. The, this call, to, the call to this very thing resounds throughout the New Testament. Paul says it this way in Philippians 2. He says, We must do all things without grumbling or disputing that, in order that, you may be blameless and innocent. Children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine like lights in the world. As you live an innocent life, as you renounce those ways of grumbling and disputing, you're showing people a picture of what it's like in the kingdom of God. You shine like lights in the world. And in Paul's context, choosing this innocent life is actually a part of what it means for you to work out your salvation, a salvation that was purchased for you by the grace of Christ. 
what, what will it cost? What will it cost to live this way in our marriages, in our families? Well, what will it cost in our workplace and where we play? What will it cost in our friendships and all other relationships? What might it cost us to renounce the human tendency toward deception to get my way? What will it cost you? Well, you might not get your way. What might it cost us if we renounce the idolatry of political power and workplace backstabbing? More significantly, what might it cost us if we do follow the ordinary human means of obtaining riches and reputation and power? What will it cost you if you do go that way? James tells us. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Now, please understand Choosing an innocent life does not mean withdrawing from the world. Choosing an innocent life does not mean withdrawing from the world or the people within it. This is not about judgmentalism. Paul elsewhere goes so far as to say, what do I have to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. God does judge those outside. But this innocent life that we are pursuing has everything to do with our allegiance to God and His ways versus allegiance to the world and its ways. And so this call cannot be used to justify any Christian who thinks themselves better than some sinner. Because it is primarily a call for the people of God to actively live out the values of our God. And so our allegiance to God requires us to choose an innocent life. We must choose to avoid those ways that he says lead to death. That leads us to the second thing. Our allegiance to him is not only about avoiding evil. God also invites us to choose the good. That is to say, He calls us to choose a worshipful life. Look with me me at verses 6 through 8. In the words washing and altar and thanksgiving and wondrous deeds, any Israelite would have heard the echoes from the books of Moses. With all the ceremony and ritual that regulated true worship of God. But one writer notes how in David's life, the dry precision of the law books blossoms into life. With the glimpse of a singing procession around the altar in the open court of the tabernacle. We... Presbyterians may be known, somewhat to our shame, as the frozen chosen, but David cannot be charged with that emotional infirmity. The man who danced hard before the Lord as the ark came into Bethlehem, here he engages his body fully. He engages his voice loudly to celebrate the Lord. 
In verse 6, David says he washes his hands in innocence. If, if you know David's story, then you know that cannot possibly mean that he is sinless. It just can't mean that, and we'll talk about that more in a minute. But rather, rather David is saying he washes his hands as one who has embraced the Lord and his covenant from the heart. Here, here David is resting on God's promise to look on those who trust in him as innocent in his sight. This is David aware that his innocence does not stem from his perfection, but rather from the dual grace of God's promise to justify him by faith and God's provision of sacrifices to atone for David's sin. This is David fully awake to the grace that has been shown to him. And he responds, moving toward God in sincerity. And so he washes his hands and he goes around God's altar while that valuable sacrifice is consumed in his place. What is striking here, though, is that ordinarily only the priests needed to wash themselves as they prepared to serve the sacrifice at the altar. They're their washing was a symbolic cleansing, picturing the removal of any defilement that would prevent them from approaching the presence of the holy, holy, holy God. But David washes himself. Not so that he can do the work of sacrifice, he couldn't. But rather so that he could further approach the presence of God knowing that the altar was the place where his sins were atoned for, knowing it was the place of his reconciliation with the God that he loved. David washes his hands so that he can get as close as he can to his God. And while he's there, he won't be silent. In verse 7, thanksgiving pours out of his mouth, not just generically, to give specificity to his praise, he recounts the past to enrich the present. He tells again the old stories of Abraham or, or the Exodus, as well as the ways that David himself has seen the wondrous deeds of God with his own eyes. And through this, David is not only worshiping the Lord himself, but he's also encouraging others, come join me. Come worship God and glorify Him with me. Come enjoy Him with me too. In verse 8, you can hear how all of this flows out of His love for the Lord. O oh Lord, I love the habitation of Your house and the place where Your glory dwells. Another points out here how David's love, like his hate, back in verse 5, is fundamentally an expression of his choice. This is where his heart is, not with the worldly. But his heart has warmed to his choice and to the company he keeps. And so here David is like a son who is, who is happy to do anything so long as he gets to be with his father. David here is like a lover who longs only to be next to the object of his affection. Like them, David just wants to be close to his God. And he'll take as much of his God as he can get. But right here, 
we can't miss one of the most important things. Remember, listen to this, this closeness to God, this deep delight to which David dedicates his whole life, this glory of God in the midst of his people, none of this was David's idea. The plan for this comes from the heart of God Himself. It existed before the beginning and caused the beginning to begin. His plan persisted when it all went wrong. And His plan runs beneath all of His promises to right all wrongs. God's plan to dwell with His people is behind the incarnation and the death and the resurrection of our Lord Jesus. And He will see that plan fulfilled in the end when again the dwelling place of God is with men. And so do not miss this marvel of God taking up residence among us because although David enjoyed the presence of God really and truly in the tabernacle, the tabernacle ceased to be the meeting place of, between God and His people because the Word became flesh and dwelt among us showing us the glory of God coming to take away our sins and wash us clean so that He could make His home with us. David washed himself to be close to God. Jesus washes you so that you can be in Him and He can be in you. To whatever extent that we, like David, see the beauty of this God who atones for us in order to welcome us close, to that extent we will choose a life of worship, getting as much of God as we can get and doing anything we can do to celebrate Him. We'll gladly obey God's call that whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Because true worship that begins on Sunday and is renewed each Sunday is meant to flow into the rest of the week as lived body expressions of love. Because we know, as Paul again says, we are not our own. We were bought with a price. And so we want to show God's greatness even in and with our own bodies. When we see these two choices of David, him choosing an innocent life and choosing a whole life of worship, we might begin to realize that these are a part of a larger choice David has made. This is the third choice that we must make as well. And in a sense, it's actually the first choice that we have to make. Look with me at verses 1 through 3 and 9 through 10. We must choose to value God's opinion of us over the opinions of men. Now this choice is behind David's plea for vindication in verse 1. He longs for the Lord to make clear those who belong to him, to make a distinction between those who have embraced him from the heart and those who have rebelled against him. And in this, David is saying that the shape of his life has been lived coram deo. His life has been lived before the face of God, in the presence of God. And that means he has walked consistently toward God over the course of his life. Which is what he appeals to in verse 1 when he talks about his integrity. Now, that word does not mean faultless. David knows himself too well for that. 
rather to, for him to have integrity in his walk with God is for David to exhibit a wholehearted sincerity in his walk with God. We, we hear elsewhere that David acknowledging his sins against the Lord, like in Psalm 51. But here, he emphasizes his trust that he is exhibited in the Lord as the defining mark of his life. He says he has trusted the Lord without wavering, literally without slipping. Which actually says much more about the consistency of his hope than the consistency of his actions. And so in verse 2, he submits himself to the Lord's judgment, inviting him to prove and try and test his heart and mind. But David is not so much challenging God to satisfy himself about David's own innocence, but rather David is asking an intense thing, something that you need to ask too. Which is, if, if David is thinking about himself and the pattern of his life wrong, then would God please show that to him? David does not want to live inconsistently, but he knows that's possible. And so he chooses to let God be his judge, even as he, in verse 3, sets before himself the steadfast love of God. Here, he shifts his focus away from his own integrity toward God's integrity, toward God's faithfulness, which, unlike David, can't fail. And so he's looking at his own life, keenly aware of God's demand for sincerity. But then he turns. He turns again, as he's always done, to rely on the grace of the one whose opinion really matters. That same choice to value God's opinion is behind verses 9 through 10, where David makes a plea. He knows that there are some men who have no future. Men who reject the source of life and chase death. God, David asked God not to sweep him away with them. And, but here, another pastor noticed how David is conscious, conscious that it is God's verdict on him that counts. And he must come to God as a humble suppliant. Again, David is valuing God's opinion over him, uh, of him over any others. Picking that up, Paul actually says something similar to that in the New Testament. He says, with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Paul's conscious choice regarding his ministry and his eternal destiny is made. He chooses to value God's opinion of him over the opinion of anyone else, including himself. And we have to make that same choice. There is only one person's approval you need. And if you base your life on the approval of others, you will be disappointed both now and in the age to come. Because what is man but a fleeting flower? What are men's opinions then but the passing thoughts of those who will one day be swept away themselves? What is your opinion of yourself? Who sees themselves clearly? Who knows how deeply sin goes in our own hearts? And so make the choice to live 
your life, coram Deo, before the face of God, and choose to value His verdict over you, above the opinions of yourself or others. And as you do that, take heart. Because for all who repent and believe in His Son, God's verdict over you is already in. Righteous in Christ. The life that David lived as he chose the ways of innocence and worship, living before the face of God, it's important to see here at the end of this psalm how that rich life is actually the inbreaking of the life of the age to come. In David, the life of heaven has already broken into the present, and he wants as much of that life in the here and now as possible. Now, I don't think that it's realistic to imagine that David did that perfectly, and you won't do it perfectly either. But remember, we are pursuing these choices in the context of superabundant grace. Jesus has already washed us and redeemed us. In Him we always live before the face of God because He is presently seated with, we are presently seated with Christ in the heavenly places. And so Christians, what do you do when you make the wrong choices? You do the same thing that we always do. You repent, you hope in Christ again, and then you pursue these good choices again. It's not a bad thing to try again and to keep doing that, because the life that God calls us to live as His people is far, far better than any life that we can devise for ourselves. It's going to take us time, it's going to take us practice to learn this music, but once you hear the beauty of this song, you don't want to sing anything else anymore. And to encourage you to keep practicing, keep making these choices, look where they lead. Look at verses 11 to 12 briefly and see how a life of faith lived before the face of God actually leads to assurance. It, in verse 11, David considers his future. There's actually a change in tense here following the progression of the psalm. In verse 1, David says, I have walked, looking to the past. In verse 3, said David, David said, I walk, here in the present. In verse 11, David says, I shall walk in my integrity. Another rightly observes how this is not self-righteousness. This is loyalty. Because look at the second line of verse 11. This is deep humility. Redeem me, he asks, because he can't walk this way without help. Be gracious, he pleads, because he is unfit to claim this good life as his right. What we hear in David can't be puffed up self-confidence. Rather, in this closing verses, what we're actually hearing is David's confidence that the access to God that he had hoped for in verses 1 through 3 will be granted by God's grace. He is pouring out his love without fear as he rests in God's steadfast love toward him. This fearless confidence is actually the fruit of God's gracious work and David's faith-guided choices. And it motivates David to keep making those same choices. And it motivates us in the same way. 
standing on the same level ground as David stood on, we will keep choosing an innocent life, a worshiping life. We'll keep valuing God's opinion of us over all others. For all of our failure and weaknesses, the grace of God still presses us on in the same way as David. You were made, you were made to live these choices. You were saved by Christ to make these choices. You have been granted the Spirit who makes you want to make these choices. And through making them, we enjoy today the life of the age to come. In them, in them God gives us a foretaste of heaven. Can't you taste it now? Even as we're gathered together to remember and sing of God's wondrous deeds done for us in Christ, can't you taste how good God is, how delicious His ways are? Well, if you can, then just wait. Because the feast is coming, and one day we will stand together in the great assembly of the redeemed, maybe even next to David. And we'll sing the songs of thanksgiving to Christ our King, who has freed us to live with Him. And until then, let's keep repenting. Let's keep trusting the grace of Jesus. And let's keep choosing again the ways of our King. And to do that, let's pray now and ask for His help and His blessing as we do that. Let's pray. Father, we praise You that what we could not do ourselves, You have done for us in Christ. Not only have You saved us from our sins, but You have saved us too this good life. Father, we praise you for our King who died to forgive us and to cleanse us, who now freely enables us to choose you and your ways. Father, would you grant us by your Spirit the strength to make these choices more and more and hold us fast until the day when we get to sing in the great assembly, singing the songs of Christ, our Passover, who was slain to bring us back to you. Until then, Lord, keep our feet on this level ground, on Christ our rock, in whose name we pray. Amen.